Please turn in your Bibles with me to Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet. We are to chapter 3, the last chapter of this three-chapter trek, four-sermon trek, though, because I want to divide this chapter into two parts, two unequal parts. You'll see as I go. We'll look at the whole of the chapter first, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll go to the, to the last three verses for a closer focus, and you'll see why in just a bit. As we return to Habakkuk, remember the storyline, the, the backdrop for the story. I'll mention it a couple times because it's so important for appreciating the particular language of the prophet. Habakkuk was called to faith in a very difficult days, 600 B.C. or so. Um, he, one of the last prophets of the Old Testament. And here he is watching Judah, the remaining portion of Israel, the last two tribes, fall into deep idolatry, deep sin, terrible rebellion. And as one of the faithful believers in Judah, uh, there are a number of them. The, the nation was characterized by evil, but there were certainly people who really trusted and rested in Yahweh's promises for salvation. Habakkuk is one of these individuals, and he cries out to God multiple times. By the time we get the book, he'd already been crying out to God for maybe years. And he's crying out to please stop the sin of Judah, the rebellion of Judah. Lord, you're not going to keep watching this go on, are you? And he wants to see the nation of Judah become God's nation in reality, not just by name. And for the faithful, and the sake of the faithful who are suffering under the sins of the nation, he asks for God to send revival, reformation. Well, God responds to him, but it's not the way he had expected. God will send that judgment. He will bring punishment. He will stop them from their sins. But he'll do the unthinkable, at least the unthinkable for Habakkuk. He will raise up a nation more wicked than Judah had become. And he'll use that nation as his tool of discipline upon Judah. And of course, Habakkuk's response is, but Lord, they're worse than us even. How could this be so? And God told him, to rest in his promises. The faithful, those who trust in Yahweh, continue to trust in him. And they will see ultimate justice realized. But for now, even in the midst of it, as true believers, you'll deal with terrible, a, a terrible outward circumstance. Trust in him. You'll be justified before God. Rest in him. Trust in his promises. So chapter 3 is the final response from Habakkuk. He's no longer going to plead a case or argue with God. He sees what God's will is. Instead, we see him responding to God's call to have faith, to trust in him, with a profession of faith, a psalm of faith, a song of faith. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk, this is God's holy word. We are blessed to have this at our disposal. So here now as I read God's word, starting at verse 1 of Habakkuk 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to to Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." to the choir master with the stringed instruments. Palmer Robertson, the great Old Testament scholar, said Habakkuk's message is all about life, the life of faith despite many calamities. Integral to such a life is the singing of songs, praising the Redeemer, the sustainer of life. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are in need of your help to understand and apply your holy word. Here we are in Habakkuk, where you reveal your plan to judge the nation of Judah. But your faithful live among the nation, and they too will suffer under this judgment for sin. This is a hard message to hear, knowing not just the offenders would suffer your wrath, but even those who believed in you, those who trusted in you as their Savior, who looked to the sacrifices and what they symbolized, the coming of Christ on their behalf. Even they would find themselves having to endure suffering and loss. Father, give us faith to trust in you no matter what the circumstances bring. Father, help us to respond to you with reverence and awe no matter the immediate circumstance in which we find ourselves. Lord God, may we be drawn to your praise no matter what. May this be an opportunity to humbly submit to you. In the end, you will sustain us and give us eternal life through Christ. This we believe. Amen. Here we are, the final chapter of Habakkuk, and it's the form of a psalm. You might say it's the 151st psalm. It's written just like the psalmist in most of David's hymns in the book of Psalms. He even says Selah at the end, which is that pause to reflect. It's also there to sing the song with these pauses. It is the expression of Habakkuk's understanding of God and his will. 
It's his professing that he believes God's promises, even when they're difficult to hear, even when he knows what's coming will be very challenging. This is a profession of faith in God. It's a picture of how we approach God, how we worship God, how we praise God. All of it is laid out for us. And we know it's meant to be sung, so it stays in place for some time, we would imagine. It says in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shigeniath. The Shigeniath, we don't know exactly what it is, but we think it's a tune or some kind of a musical setting. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. This is a response to what happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Do you remember the dialogue that we witnessed in chapter 1 and chapter 2? It opens with Habakkuk saying, Lord, why aren't you intervening to stop the sin of Judah? These are supposed to be uh, your people, the nation of Judah, God's people. But they were acting in complete rebellion, total covenant breakers. Nothing about them manifested God's identity. The Lord responds and says, I will stop it. And I will use Babylon to do so. And the prophet responds, retorting, wait, seriously? Babylon, that's who you're going to raise up? They're worse than us. They're the worst of the worst. They'll mock your name and people will mock you if you let Babylon have this place as a tool in your hands, uh, this tool of punishment. And the Lord says, trust me. Trust in me. Yes, they are puffed up. And they are arrogant too. In Babylon, the balance of chapter 2, we discover, will meet God's justice as well. God promises judgment on the prideful and the arrogant, just like Judah had become and just like Babylon. But for the humble, those who see this calamity, those who see God's justice, for the humble who lower themselves, they don't see themselves as self-righteous before God or self-sustaining in the world, but humbly bow before God. The humble, those will be the people God raises up. In fact, if you remember two verses from this short series we're in the midst of, remember Habakkuk 2.4 and Habakkuk 2.14, because these are the verses that give the content or the instructions we need to be humble, to rest in what God has promised. In Habakkuk 2.4, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the Babylonians. He's talking about those who are in Judah, who are not true believers, who are walking in their own way, in their own righteousness. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Because he's arrogant and self-reliant, that nation, those people, they are not right. Their soul is upright. They're unjustified before God. They can't stand in his presence. But, Habakkuk says in 2.4, but the righteous, the ones who are right before God, who are justified by God, what marks them? They shall live by faith. They shall live by trust. They shall live resting in God's promises. Now, you probably know Habakkuk 2.4, one of the most important passages to be requoted and give us, given full meaning in the New Testament in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews, quoted by all those authors. It's the very verse, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, that Martin Luther read and grasped the gospel. Oh, how are we to be right with God? The only way we could be right before God is having faith in Christ. It can't be standing in front of him ourselves in arrogance, puffed up. We are, up, we are not upright within us. 
But when we rest in what God has provided, in who God has provided, we are right by Him, with Him. Now, the, Old, the New Testament gives us that full picture. We don't have all that fullness unpacked right here in the, in the Old Testament. It's the immediate context we look for. In verse 14 gives us some context. Habakkuk, this judgment's coming. Judah will endure it. Trust in me. Because, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Trust in my promises and my provision. Trust in what I'm bringing you. For all of us as Christians, we have a secure future. Our future is tied and united to the resurrected Christ. It does not matter what happens. I'm not saying we won't feel it or wouldn't be painful or we didn't have to endure something difficult, whether by uh, death of quote-unquote natural causes because sin runs its course eventually or by outward circumstances. Whatever we suffer here will be very temporal. If you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, he is the one who's gone for us, the first fruit among the brethren who has been raised again. So we know our eternal life is sure. We may deal with something in the short, just like the true believers in Judah had to deal with the persecution that came upon them because of Babylon. But their souls were saved in God. They were safe in God. But for those who this judgment would come upon so swiftly, they would have that opportunity by God's, God's appointment. But this knowledge that no matter what happens, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.4 and Habakkuk 2.14 give us the essence of God's promise for his people. And this helps us endure whatever may come our way outwardly. What do we do in such circumstances as Habakkuk finds himself in? In the midst of of a nation that has turned its back upon God. What would the righteous do in such a circumstance? Habakkuk's psalm is a song or a profession of faith in God. In its model for us, it's not the only pattern of worship in the Old Testament, but it's one that resounds often enough. It, it mirrors the kind of way in which we ought to approach our God who we believe in who we believe has provided Christ for us. We trust his promises. We know things can be difficult because of sin. It could be our own bodies breaking down and we know we'll die, but we'll be with him. We'll have eternal life. It could be some pressure comes upon the church, like so many of our brothers and sisters in the world right now that cannot get together openly like this without fear of their life. That pressure could come upon them for sure. What do they do in such circumstances? The response we read here in chapter 3 helps us see how we might act. Let the difficult circumstances of this life in this fallen world, let this be an occasion for us to surrender to God. Surrender to his overwhelming power. In other words, let the difficult circumstances of life be an occasion for us to come together and worship him. Habakkuk 1 and 2 is a call to faith. Habakkuk 3 is a profession of faith. You'll notice the outline I have for you. There's actually a fourth point that will become the full sermon next week, but I want you to hear it now. There's a flow. You'll see the first two verses in this song, this response, this profession of faith. The prophet approaches God very reverently, very respectfully, very carefully, the first couple verses. Then verse 3 down to verse 15, you will see him recount Recall and express the glory of God. Now, it's not just what he did in the past. It's also what he's about to do in the present and the future for him. It's, it's a full vision of all God's power, all God's judgment, 
all God's salvation. We would say these three elements, his power, his judgment, and his salvation. This is part of what goes into recounting God's glory. And he'll do this in these middle verses, 3 through 15. He approaches God reverently. He recounts God's glory. And then he surrenders in verse 16 to God very humbly. What else can you do when you meet the living God? You surrender humbly. And then verse 17 to 19, the fourth point you might add on this, he rejoices in the Lord. After he's gone through meeting God with reverence, a reverent approach, after he recounts the great glory of God, he surrenders to him humbly. He rejoices that he is in God. He rejoices in his Savior. He rejoices in the one who will sustain him eternally. And that's how Habakkuk ends. That's the response. Not another appeal to God to, no, don't do your will like you say it. Please, Lord, stop. This is your will. You will uphold your people. I trust in you because the righteous will go on living by faith, faith in the promises of God, ultimately realized in the person of Christ who provides all of our sufficiency. Let's look together at these different steps that the prophet takes in his song of profession. You can see they're very much steps like we would take in worship. Habakkuk approaches God reverently, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. It's a prayer. A prayer is a statement of confession of faith that God is appealed to because he can answer such a prayer. You only go to one with a prayer who can make a change. So just coming by way of a prayer of Habakkuk, it's not an appeal, it's not another argument, Lord, a prayer of Habakkuk. He comes respectfully. It's a careful appeal. He prays to God because he believes God has the power to move. Verse 2, O Lord, Yahweh. I mentioned Yahweh here because you'll notice in your English version, there are capital O Lords, there's O God. Uh, There are three different Hebrew words used, interchanged in this psalm of Habakkuk. And here we have the covenant name, O Lord, usually when it says O Lord, but not every time, even in this text it's different. But almost every time, when you read the Old Testament, it's, O Lord, it's O Yahweh. It's the covenant God, the God who's shown us favor. There's also Elohim, the more powerful term. There's Adonai. All three of these are used in this passage. It's a rich passage of profession. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. I've heard what you've decided to do with Judah by Babylon. I've heard this report and your work. O Lord, do I fear. I'm in awe. I reverence. You're the sovereign one. God told his plans for judgment on Judah through Babylon, his plans for judgment of Babylon also. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Execute your plan as you have said. You are the wise God. But Lord, please remember mercy in the midst of your wrath. Carry out your plan. It's the right plan because it's your plan. But please, O Lord, and he appeals respectfully, carefully to the grace of God, the amazing grace of God, so that the faithful in the midst of this would feel God's mercy under this temporal load that they would be bearing. As your plan unfolds, O Lord, remember your mercy. And brothers and sisters, as we approach God, it's important for us to remember that reverence as we come into his presence, privately and corporately, that we would know who we are coming into the presence of. And then we see what he does next. He recounts, 
He spends time recounting God's glory. He goes over who God is and what he has done and what he will do. Verses 3 through 15 are this recounting. And I noted to you, and I mentioned again, what he's recounting in these verses, and there's much here to, be, to look at. God's glory is, in, is, is captured by the power he displays in what he does towards mankind, what he's done in creation. It's also about his salvation, how in the midst of all this, he saves a people for himself. That's the essence of God's gracious covenant, to save a people for himself out of those who are under his wrath. And then his judgment is on display all throughout this passage. His power, his salvation, and his judgment all woven through as we look at this middle section of recounting God's glory. So much of what we do in worship should be spent time contemplating what God has done in salvation, what God has done in our lives, what God has done on behalf of his people, for his people, what he's done in the world. So much of what we sing about or read about or talk about should be testifying to the great glory of God in his power, in his salvation, and in his judgment. Now what he does as we start looking at verse 3, please look there with me, is he helps, he steps into the scene. The scene looks back at things that God has done. You'll recognize some of the parallels. You'll see some of the references. But they're not always distinct because he's also stepping in to what's starting to move, this plan of God to bring judgment against Judah. And then the plan of God to bring judgment against Babylon, ultimately picturing a final judgment. It's a woven tapestry. It's sort of like if you've ever gone to a 3D movie. A few years ago, I went to one of the Jurassic Park movies. I like to see them in 3D whenever I can see them, whatever the movie is. But that one in particular, uh, it stands out to me. I was sitting in one of the seats that rumble every time, you know, whatever a T-Rex runs by or whatever the latest, greatest is. And so there's a scene where you're running through the wood or you're sitting while the protagonists are running through a field where all these massive dinosaurs are just missing them. And it's in 3D and you feel like you're in the middle of it as you watch this thing unfold. That's the vision Habakkuk relays. He's in the middle of the scene of God's power and judgment and salvation. It's unfolding. It's colorful to him. It's real to him as he describes it in song a song that could be sung in the future. Here's this glorious power on display starting at verse 3. God, now the base word is Elohim, Eloah. God, the great God, came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. He's describing the geography of Israel where God would come from the south and move up towards the temple. Selah. Think about this. It's that region that stretches from Sinai to the whole of Israel. And the Lord is in his holy temple, it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 20. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. It's a picture of God coming from on high to make himself known on the earth. And he does this multiple times throughout the history of God's redeeming a people. And he'll do it again, is what Habakkuk is saying. And he'll do it again yet, finally. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Certainly there's a reference here to what he's already done in sending the plagues back in the time of the Egyptians and their captivity of the people of God. Other times God would send pestilence or disease. And we all know too well what that can mean. A man can seem very strong, but something very small can knock them down. Pestilence and plague. We feel helpless, powerless, sick. And God can bring this and has brought that in the past. And even as Babylon feels like they're higher and mightier than Judah and everyone else, the great God will bring this pestilence and this plague. 
following at his heels. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. This is the picture of the bigness of God. Imagine someone there with balances, measuring things, judging things with weights. A, A big person with a small scale. Here's God standing and measuring the earth. The thing that's so big and unexplorable to us, the earth. We still haven't even scratched the depths of the oceans at all. And these many years later with all our technology, and here the Lord God stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Not your, his were the everlasting ways. And this is shocking, really, because if you're familiar with the Psalms in particular, there are references to mountains and hills all the time. And the reason is they, they stand as lasting landmarks. Um, all sorts of stuff may change, but the elevation of the land, the mountains and the hills always remain. You can come back 10 years later, 50 years later, and the mountain range looks the same. I have the experience every year, just had it this last two weeks, where we return to a place in the mountains where the seminary that I teach at is at. Our, my kids love going there. And like, there are different houses every time. The grass looks a little different. There are d- different livestock, different animals, different vehicles driving around. But that mountain range is always there. And it just, you could just measure the whole place by it. And the hills always have a certain up, they have a certain, uh, a certain way to go up and down, and you come to know it and learn it. And it's just there. It's kind of like this cemented landmark you always know of. Yet, when God is on the move, when God's about to do his work, even though everything seems like it's the same, God reminds us that he's the one who changes it all when he needs to. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. A mountain scattering to move them, you can't even imagine it. The everlasting hills sank low. His, God's ways, only his ways, this is what it's saying, only his ways are everlasting. Habakkuk recounts God's power and glory, saying in verse 7, I saw the tents of Kishan in affliction. These are places of power, the former, probably the former civilization of Cush that was such an antagonist to Israel. The curtains of the land of Midian did did tremble. The Midianites, uh, those who occupied that land, were rising up again, and they trembled at God's coming. God's powerful judgment on the nations had the effect of shaking the fixtures of the earth, both the natural resources and the people that live there. Whole nations shaken by God's powerful hand of judgment. And Habakkuk professes faith in this reality, in the face of what's coming to him personally. He looks up from it and knows, yes, we will receive this from the Babylonians. But the Babylonians will receive justice from God. For us, we need to trust in him and his provision for salvation. Verse 8, he asks a few rhetorical questions to build the case, to build the picture of God's power, God's judgment, and his salvation. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? What made you so angry to do this to the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on the horses on your chariot of salvation? Even those landmarks that divide and give boundaries are moved by you. And think of the power of those things and what they symbolize in the Scriptures whether it be someone swallowed by a huge fish in the ocean, that that depthless, it just goes on forever sea, whether it be the splitting apart of the Red Sea or the stopping of the Jordan or the Lord Jesus calming a storm that has to be calmed only by God, the powers of these, these waters. And he says, look at them stir, only to point out God's hand, God's power. Verse 9, you strip the sheath from your bow, that means he's 
about to battle. He's about ready to unleash all of his. He, they bind their, their bow with a cover and then take the sheath off, calling for many arrows. He's ready to shoot. Your powerful hand is unleashed, and it will unleash again. It's done it in the past. I know it could do it now. Habakkuk is giving a profession of his faith. You split the earth with rivers, verse 9. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The mountains and the waters never react to mankind like this. Figuratively, those things would just laugh at man. And a mountain will chew up a person. The water will swallow a person. Massive vessels, civilizations go under the seas. But in this case, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Even it had to worship God. This is the great God Habakkuk is recounting his glory concerning. Whatever our problems are, whatever our pressures, personal or corporate, we always do well to pause and worship God. Recount his glory and it will reset us. It will resize the world out there. It won't be so big anymore. Because our God is much bigger than that. And this is what the people of God have to be about on a regular basis. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. Even, the, even time stops when God says it. He invented it so he can stop it. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. Do you see how this is the people of Judah who are faithful in the midst of Israel? Judah, the faithful who trust in God, how this would help them endure whatever might be coming because of the punishment coming upon the nation in which they live. The sun and the moon stood still in their place in the light of your arrows as they speed at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. This is the God whose side we should be on. Not the faltering nations. Not the places under judgment. That's not where you run. You go to God in these times. This is what Habakkuk is warning the Judaites about. This is a display of God's past action for sure, purging Canaan in the times of Joshua. It's the hand of God subduing the Philistines under the leadership of the judges. It's the show of God's power through the angel on the armies of Sennacherib. It's what God has done countless times before. Habakkuk knows he can do it again, and he will do it again. He's recounting God's power, his salvation, and his judgment. But in the midst of this all, all of this justified, righteous wrath of God, Habakkuk confesses something very important in recounting his glory. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. At the backdrop of what God is ultimately doing is to fulfill his promise to save a people for himself. And Habakkuk sings this. He doesn't say stop doing what you're doing. He knows God will do what he's going to do. But you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Now, this is an interesting enigma right here. Who is he talking about regarding the anointed? This is the word we use for Messiah. It's the Hebrew word. Now, immediately, many scholars say that really what he's probably referring to here, talking immediately in the time of Habakkuk, for the salvation of your anointed. This is why he went out. He's going to raise up someone to crush Babylon. How do we know this? Because the next phrase says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. So there's going to be one raised up, his anointed one, who will crush the enemy. In no doubt, in an immediate sense, Cyrus of Persia will come to be that instrument 
that will turn all the strength of Babylon against itself for their own judgment. But there's certainly also this messianic hope, this picture for the one who will crush Satan, who will crush the serpent's head when Jesus does come. Remember back to 2.4. What does it say? Behold, his soul is puffed up. Who? The Babylonians. Those were the enemies of God, the Judahites who didn't trust in God. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. They'll go on living in the midst of all of it by their faith in God's promises. Habakkuk is resolved to accept God's will about judgment against Judah, but he's also counting on full justice to come upon the Babylonians. Verse 14, here is that picture. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his, area, his warriors. The Babylonians would be undone by their own strength, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Habakkuk's talking personally. We're talking on behalf of Judah. They came to wreck me with their arrows, but eventually they will get wrecked by their own arrows, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. They think they're going to get away with it. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty warriors. What do you do with all this? Verse 16, here is the result of approaching God with reverence, recounting his glory. Now look at verse 16. What else could you do when you're in the presence of God? Surrender to him humbly. What a great trek for us in worship as we walk through meeting God, recounting his glory. And part of his glory is recounting his salvation for the people who believe. That will make you humble before God. And when we're humble, our faith grows. It says in verse 16, I hear, and my body trembles. Now it's reached a physical manifestation. It's not just psychological, spiritual. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, the sound of God's promises of, promises of judgment to come. Rottenness enters my bones. This is an ancient way of describing the sense of feeling sick physically. Something's giving way in me. My legs tremble beneath me. I can barely stand in the presence of knowing who you are, this great God. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will wait for this. I'm not going to say no to the justice of God, but I will wait in the midst of it because eventually God will bring full justice. He's humbly submissive to God. He's accepted Judah's fate. He's standing in stunned awe. He's resolved to endure what is coming. Recounting God's glory has the effect of humbling him in his circumstance. Relying on the character of God, he can wait for God to act by moving against those who are invading Israel. Babylon will receive their justice as well. And if we fail to recount God's glory, we might become arrogant and think that God owes us something. But the prophet in confessing, he confesses that his stress and suffering is part of God's forecasted judgment, but it's not to last for long. He was resolved to endure this that was coming because God would uphold him ultimately. I hear and my body trembles, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. O. Palmer Robertson, I referred to before, said, Habakkuk's distraught body shudders to consider that he must live with the constant anticipation of God's coming judgment. Although deliverance is certain, it will come only after judgment. 
Surrendering to God's will is one of the great results of approaching Him in worship. It sets us right for the world in which we live. Approach, recount, surrender, and then the final step, which we'll spend more time on with one sermon next week, verse 17 to 19. Finally, rejoice. Rejoice in God your Savior. Have joy in God your Savior. And that joy is not dependent on what happens around us. In fact, look at the passage in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, even though all that will break down with God's coming judgment, yet I will rejoice in the Lord Yahweh, once again, his covenant name. No matter what, I will rejoice in him. It's temporary what's happening here. It says in verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord, Yahweh Adonai, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This renewed rejoicing in the Lord puts his feet in a place that's stable even when it all comes down on him. The psalmist realizes that his faith can be safely put in Yahweh's grace for his personal well-being and for their national survival, his covenantal survival. Even if everything runs out, everything's gone, all sustenance lost, I will still give praise to God. Baker, the commentator, says in his section on Habakkuk 3, he is the covenant God who keeps his promises. And in periods of affliction, for his covenant people, he is also their savior. Even now, in the midst of doubt and oppression, the writer wants to rejoice in God his savior. Rejoicing comes from having God as savior. He shows that he is prepared to live by faith. His faith in unseen promises, even suffering. But the righteous shall live by his or her faith. This prayer of Habakkuk is a psalm. It provides stamina for us in the coming hardships that we may endure, whether they be personal because of the ravages of sin that just affect us or on a a wider scale. And this is what worship does for us. It sets us up. It readies for this. It allows us not to just to endure, but to rejoice in God our Savior. Kind of starts in depression and doubt. God's righteousness and justice is on display, but it ends. It ends with a lively confidence in God's provision and sustaining power. Verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Ken Fentress, who writes a commentary, um, gives a good closing statement that I'll close with. Fentress writes, Habakkuk began his dialogue with the Lord in the form of a frustrated complaint about the state of affairs in Judah and God's apparent silence concerning it. Now the prophet is hushed in reverential awe before the Lord in his temple. When we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord in worship, it can be profoundly transformative. Our perspective changes in all things in this world. When vexed by the sinfulness of society, Christians must go to the house of the Lord and worship Him in order to gain the strength, the wisdom, and the insight that we need to rightly understand the world that we are passing through as mere sojourners. So let the difficult circumstances of this life be an occasion to surrender ourselves to God's overwhelming power. Let the difficult circumstances of life 
be the occasion for us to worship Him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you with reverence and with awe for your many powerful works, yet we approach you as our Heavenly Father at the same time, knowing that you will sustain us through whatever storm may come. We submit to your care. We trust you for whatever situation you bring. Where we lack trust, O Lord, please build our faith. We believe in your promise to deliver us ultimately through Christ. May that manifest itself as a priority or a principle in all of our life and our decisions. That this assurance that we have from you might give us strength to stand. We will take joy in you, the God of our salvation. You are our strength. You make our feet like the deer's. You make us tread on high places through Jesus Christ. Amen.